We all know that sports has been a place that organized crime has looked to to make some more money, and no sport has been more aimed at than boxing. Well, finally, there is a definitive book out there that talks about boxing and the mob. It's from our good friend Jeffrey Sussman, who all his stuff on boxing is incredible. This book is called Boxing and the Mob. The Notorious History of the Sweet Science, and it's just been released, and uh, Jeffrey will tell us all about how to get it. Jeffrey, good to have you on. Uh, first of all, your book is just a, a page-turner. You know, you can't it, – it's not only a history, but it's also fun, and you open up with the idea, a whole idea, or first heard about – boxing and the mob when at your bar mitzvah you were introduced to somebody there by your father tell us a little bit about that my father had an uncle uh his name was irving and i met him at uh, my bar mitzvah i had never known him before and um when i was introduced to him he handed me a hundred dollar bill uh, in, in 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 cash that was in the mid 1950s. Yeah, and I, I was struck by it. You know, a hundred dollar bill from someone I, I had never met before. Anyway, I asked my father about this man, and my father told me that Irving had been a, uh, a bootlegger during Prohibition, and uh, during the uh, uh, and had made a fortune and, and and had a an estate up next to Governor Harriman's in upstate New York. And my father's family was rather poor during the Depression, and his uncle Irving didn't give him any financial help, but he advised him on uh, betting on fixed fights. <laughs> oh, and, wow. <laughs> and he told him in particular uh, a number of fights to bet on in which Primo Carnera w- w- was fighting, and Primo Carnera was owned by a mobster named Oni Madden. And uh, my father's uncle told him, you know, bet, bet $75 and, and, and you'll win 750 or 1000 And he gave him other uh, uh, price fights to, to bet on of, of less well-known people mm-hmm. where, where the odds were, were much greater uh, than they were with uh, Primo Carnera. And I was fascinated by this when my father told me this story. It was the first time I ever heard about uh, yeah. Uh, uh, fixed fights in boxing. Well, and there was a risk, right? If you do that, and then somebody finds out about it, and it shouldn't have been there. So, I mean, being a part of that, even as a uh, gambler, was a little risky. Probably. I'm sure it was. In your book, you, you talk about this, but you start out with the Arnold Rothstein story, which a lot of people know, involving the fixing of the 1919 World Series, which... At the time, it was a huge thing because it put, really, pro sports in danger. Sure. And one of the things that that Rothstein and uh, his bagman, uh, a former featherweight boxing champion named A. Battelle, uh, figured out was that it would be much easier to fix a boxing match than to fix a, a baseball game because in baseball, you had to fix all those players. Right. In, in boxing, you only had to fix one player. And uh, it didn't cost you as much, and the the risks were much less. Yeah, exactly. And that you know was such a shock at that time, and so forth. And of course, the Major League Baseball's reaction to that was bringing Judge Landis. All right, we're going to really get down on that. But like you say, boxing is the is the easy touch, right? Because there's just so so many less people involved. That, that, that's right, and and even if you don't fix the boxer, all you have to do is fix one or two judges for, uh, for a, a match where there's not going to be a knockout, where it's just going to be decided 
on points, and the judges will be the ones to to decide how many points to award to a particular boxer. Yeah, you know, you've covered boxing all your life. Points are one of those things where one or two here or there can make a whole difference, and it's really kind of hard to, as an observer to see that. It is hard, but, you know, a lot of people have been kind of flabbergasted when they've watched a fight and they've decided that uh, a fighter A uh, had outboxed fighter B, and yet fighter B won. And they want to know whether the judge is incompetent or were they fixed. And in most cases, they were fixed. You know, you say something great in the book, and I, I marked it, and it hit me right away. You go, gamblers only bet on sure things, you know. And when they did these type of things, uh, Jeffrey, was there always that risk that somebody could not take a dive, turn on you and stuff? And I guess that put their life in jeopardy. Well, it was interesting because with Max Baer, when he was fighting Primo Carnera for the heavyweight championship of the world, two mobsters came into his dressing room and they told him he better lose that fight. And Max Baer had a very tough manager named Ansel Hoffman, and he told the mobsters to take a hike, and for some reason they did. And they turned around, and Oni Madden and his cohorts all bet on Max Baer to, uh, <laughs> to, to win, and supposedly they cleaned up. They won over a million dollars. Wow. Well, Max Bear strikes me, and I, I got that from reading your book about him. He was a pretty decent guy. He wasn't going to go for that, I would think. No, he he wasn't that kind of guy at all. He he felt that uh, you know he didn't have to go along with the mob in order to be successful. And there were a number of fighters later on who didn't feel as if they had to go along with the mob. Uh, Sugar Ray Robinson uh, and and Carmen Basilio were, were two who absolutely resisted the mob, and uh, n- nothing really happened to them for resisting the mob. That's really interesting because it had to be a gutsy thing because, you know, especially back then, these guys would come and visit you and, you know, your family's at risk, everything you care about is at risk. It seems like it's pretty gutsy to say no to them. It is. Uh, You know, there's a story of uh, Frankie Carbo who controlled boxing uh, throughout the the 1950s and early 1960s going up to Sugar Ray Robinson's training camp and and uh, he was waiting for Robinson in his car, and he said to Robinson, you know, you can make a lot more money if you go along with us and, and let us fix some of your fights. And Robinson just said to him, you know, that's not my style. I don't, I don't do it. And, and, and they, let, they let him alone. That's, that's really, it's, it's not only brave, but it's a smart decision because then you don't get into that, and it really is all on you. Exactly. And then uh, uh, Carmen Basilio's manager said, that if he wanted a title fight, he'd have to pay off Frankie Carbo and uh, Frankie Palermo, who, who controlled pretty much the middleweight and welterweight divisions during the 40s and 50s and early 60s. And uh, Carmen Basilio said to his manager, he said, look, you want to pay them, you pay them. I'm not giving you a nickel out of, out of my pay. And, and, and that was his way of standing up to the mob. Wow. Well, you know, and it wasn't just championships, right? I mean, the local cards, that happened there, too. They were involved in that, weren't they? Absolutely. And you couldn't get a fight in, in Madison Square Garden, for instance, as a welterweight or a middleweight, un- unless you were willing to work with Frankie Carpo, Frankie Palermo, and a guy named Jim Norris. And they, they controlled uh, all the fights, and they controlled the outcomes of those fights. You know, I, I was watching an old Untouchables. It's kind of a pep, f- fun thing I do. I love that show. And they were showing that. Why was it that these cities, you know, where, like you say, New York and I guess Chicago, 
where this was obvious it was happening and nobody tried to stop it. The, 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 the mobsters had a, a tremendous lock on it, and they were, they were paying off politicians left and right. Um, uh, you know, especially in, in New York at Tammany Hall, which controlled uh, democratic politics in, in New York. And if you wanted to do business with Tammany Hall or you wanted favors from them, you just paid them off. Yeah, it's incredible. It's hard to imagine now. You know, there's some great fights you talk about in there. And, you know, we're familiar with some of them thanks to uh, the movies like Raging Bull. You talk about Jake LaMotta. And, in fact, I think the chapter is the big fix on that. Right. And that was a tough one, right? Because LaMotta must have hated that. And he had to do that to move up. And, uh, you know, here was a guy that was tough as nails. And it just had to kill him. Yeah. I I mean, he refused for years to deal with the mob. And but he couldn't get a title fight, and uh, finally, uh, he he wanted a, a title fight so badly that that he agreed to take a dive uh, after uh, Frankie Carbo beseeched him to do this. And even after he took the dive against Billy Fox, and it was very obvious to everyone who saw the fight that that he took a dive because he just stood there and hardly defended himself, and people were booing and screaming, and. That that was his way of, of demonstrating to the world that that uh, it was a dive that he really wasn't fighting. But he, even after that, he had to have five or six more fights before he got a shot at the title, and 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 then he finally came into his own. But in at the time that he took the dive against Billy Fox, he also bet a hundred thousand dollars on Billy Fox to win. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's another way of doing it, I suppose. You know, in you mentioned that a few times where people, you know, the crowd can see it and they're booing. Do you think part of the reason uh, that this was kind of allowed to continue is the fact that it didn't stop people from going to the fights, you know? And, and I think I, I get kind of the idea that they all kind of knew that that happened once in a while and they were angry about it, that they're watching it. But at the same time, it was part of the game. It, it, it was part of the game, and, and a lot of the people who went to the fights thought that it only happened periodically. They didn't think that it happened as often as it did, because most of the time it wasn't that obvious. Yeah, and, and you know, getting back to the story of your uncle, I could see where, um, you know, if people had the right connections on that thing, and you don't make it too obvious, it was a way you could make a real living on this. Yeah, I, I mean, people who were involved in the boxing game were making a fortune. And, you know, they turned to boxing after Prohibition ended because they were looking for other ways to make money illegally. And one of the ways that they found was through boxing. And, and it combined easily with gambling. And, and, and there were members of organized crime who were promoting gambling, and gambling fit in very neatly with, um, with boxing. Well, how did they finally get the mob i mean at least there might be some influences now who knows but there's not the influence that you write about certainly back uh, s- several decades ago what was the big change i mean was it was there uh, you know did the game just clean itself up or how did that work well, well what happened is th- there was a major prosecution against uh, frankie carbo frankie uh, uh, palermo uh, jim norris and and and, and others uh, as a result of um, FBI wiretaps in Los Angeles in the 1940s, when Frankie Car—I'm sorry, in the uh, late 1950s, okay. when when Frankie Carpo and Frankie Palermo were trying to get hold of a uh, welterweight champ named uh, Don Jordan, 
and they were threatening uh, Don Jordan's trainer and manager, and they even uh, severely beat them up. And, and the local police in Los Angeles weren't doing anything uh, to help them. They, they refused to get involved. And uh, the manager and the trainer w- went to the feds, and the feds wired them and tapped their phones, and they got all this evidence against uh, Frankie Carbo and Frankie Palermo. And, and it was prosecuted by Robert Kennedy, and, and he won convictions, and uh, Frankie Carbo was sentenced to 25 years in prison, and Frankie Palermo, 15 years. I think that Jim Norris was out on probation and and, and was fined and had to give up some of his interests. But even from prison, uh, Frankie Carbo and Frankie Palermo had an interest in Sonny Liston, and and, and they were involved in, in his fights as well. Yeah, we're going to talk about listing in a second, but I'm just wondering, as I'm listening to you too, the fact of when TV got involved with Howard Cosell and more and more of these fights were televised, it was less, uh, you know, more people are seeing it, right? Does that go a little bit to help? Because, you know, more the more eyes on it, I, I would imagine the harder it is to do. Uh, yeah, yeah, you would think so, but, but nevertheless, um, uh, Carbo and, and uh, Jim Norris uh, controlled all the Friday night fights that were televised that came from Madison Square Garden. Oh, wow. And, and for them, it was a monopoly, so that when a, uh, a, a, a very fine boxing trainer named Ray Arcel was uh, promoting televised boxing matches from Boston on Saturday nights, he was warned uh, not to... Uh, to continue televising them, and he had a number of threats against his life, and he ignored them. Oh. And one day, on his uh, way to the Boston Arena, someone came up behind him with a lead pipe wrapped uh, in newspaper, and and cracked him over the head and fractured his skull. Oh. And and he was in the hospital for weeks, and he decided at, at that point that his life was worth more than televising uh, boxing matches, and so that stopped. Uh, the televising of boxing matches from Boston on Saturday night. And Ray Arcel dropped out of boxing for 14 years. He was, he was frightened of getting involved in it. And he only went back, uh, uh, as I said, 14 years later, when uh, the, the manager of Roberto Duran uh, wanted him to, uh, to, to be Roberto's trainer because he thought he was one of the best trainers around. And Ray Arcel came back and helped uh, Roberto Duran win the title. What about these state boards? Did they finally clean this thing up? You know, you talk about Kennedy doing some of the underworld stuff. Do the athletic commissions and stuff in each state do a better job of policing themselves? They they do a better job of making sure that uh, uh, fighters abide by certain rules, but then there are also states that don't have any boxing commissioners. And and, and so what would happen is is a guy who was desperate to make money, but he was a loser, and and would, let's say, lose a fight in Kentucky – and, and then fight in Illinois under a different name, and then he would fight again in New Jersey under even a third name. And, and so yeah. he, he would have been banned from boxing because he had suffered so many dangerous blows, and, and, and there were a number of fighters who died uh, as, as a result of being misused by uh, managers who knew that their fighter was uh, uh, changing his name to fight in different venues and, 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 and avoid sanctions from the various state boxing commissioners. Is that sort of a desperation that gets into the sport? Because you have people from some of the poorest neighborhoods uh, around the country and so forth, and 
you make a life doing that. Not everybody's like Rock, Rocky Graziano that you write about that's you know, smart and ends up, uh, you know, after his boxing career, he's got all these things set up. He's really smart. A lot of these people don't know anything else. That's right. I mean, they, they come from very poor backgrounds. Many of them have very limited educations. Uh, this is the only way that they know how to make a living. Uh, they uh, go around from state to state boxing, uh, getting sometimes just a few hundred dollars here and a few hundred dollars there, maybe a few thousand dollars. And they can't afford to, to lay off boxing for long periods of time because they don't have the money to support themselves. It's incredible. You know, you mentioned before, and I want to cover that because Las Vegas really knows Sonny Liston. He's, that's where he lived and so forth. Sonny Liston was one of those people, and you write about it extensively in the book. He really got caught up in this because this guy was a great fighter. Was it, were those fights fixed? Because they still talk about that today. Well, um, I, 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 th I think that both fights with Muhammad Ali were fixed, though I don't think Muhammad Ali knew anything about it. In, in, in the first fight... Uh, you know, he sat down, I think it was after the seventh round, uh, and, and wouldn't come out of his corner. <clears throat> and everyone thought that that was, uh, was evidence that it was fixed. However, it probably was fixed, but they did a medical examination of his shoulder afterwards, and it looked as if it had bled into the muscles of his arm, and he wasn't able, to, in fact, to lift his arm. So even though that fight was probably fixed, he couldn't afford even if he wanted to, right. uh, because he couldn't move one arm. But but the second fight in in um, Lewiston, Maine, was definitely fixed. Um, uh, there was a Midwest uh, a gangster named uh, John Vitale who owned a part of uh, Sonny Liston's contract, and he told friends not to bother going to um, wow. to, to, to Lewiston because. Uh, uh, Sonny would take a dive in the first round. And, and then there was a famous Las Vegas uh, gambler named Ash Resnick who, who told a friend who wanted to fly up to Lewis, and he said, don't bother getting on a plane. The fight is going to be over before you get there. Wow. And, 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 and supposedly Ash Resnick uh, made a million dollars on that fight. And, and, and also... Uh, supposedly, Sonny Liston bet on um, Muhammad Ali to win the fight. So, where are we today? Let's 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 talk about that, Jeffrey. Where are we today? Obviously, it's not what we saw. It's certainly not not at the level it was in your book. Is that still around, though? Do you still have that? Because it seems like it's especially in some of the more regional locations. It still seems like uh, it's a way to make money if if you're so inclined. Well, you know, uh, managers have become m much smarter. So, for example, you know, you know, they'll choose who an opponent should be for, for their fighter. If they want their fighter to come along and, and have a good boxing record, they're going to uh, uh, have opponents for their man who, who is not, as very, not, not a very good fighter. So they, they know that their guy's going to win. And, 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 and by betting on that, they're almost betting on a sure thing. The, the other thing is that in 1993, Sammy Gravano testified before a Senate committee investigating corruption in boxing. And he said that the way the mob would get involved in boxing, if it were to get involved in boxing, and he was very vague about that, would be not by fixing fights, but by owning a fighter through his manager. And, 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 the, and the fighter wouldn't even know that he was owned uh, by the mob, and, and the mob would own his manager. And 
what they would do is they would uh, take that fighter along and make sure that he won a whole series of fights. And then they would work with one of the sanctioning bodies. They would pay the sanctioning body. Uh, Gravano mentioned that a, a sanctioning body wanted $10,000 to rate a fighter they had. Wow. And, and, uh, but because he mentioned John Gotti's name, uh, the, the sanctioning body said, uh, oh, well, as, as a courtesy, we'll only take $5,000. And, 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 and the point was that, that the, the sanctioning body could raise the person up to the level of a contender. And once a person became a contender, there were all these ancillary ways of, of making incredible amounts of money through pay TV and 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 all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where the fight would be worth <clears throat> tens of millions of dollars, and b- both the winner and the loser in the fight w- would be making tens of millions of dollars. And and and, and that could be a, a much subtler way for for the mob to get involved and control boxing than it did in in the early days when they were simply fixing fights. Well, this book is fantastic. It really covers this thing. One last thing I want to ask you, though, as somebody who's covered boxing and, you know, you've written some great books on it, I know what you think about people like Max Baer and Rocky Graziano and stuff, and it has to hurt as you go through that because the sport, when done the right way, is probably the truest sport out there. You know, they call it the sweet science. It kind of hurts to see whenever any of this stuff happens to take away the credibility of the people that are doing it right. Absolutely. And, you know, know, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to get into a ring and face someone uh, who who is as strong and as powerful as you are. And and it's probably one of the only sports in the world where someone gets up and is willing to test himself in, in, in a kind of existential way that no other sport requires. And, and it, you know, it, 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 it started with the ancient Greeks in the Olympics, and, and, and it's been going on ever, ever since then. And, and, and it's a shame when uh, boxing is, is degraded by, by, by the influence of, of, of gangsters who are taking advantage of the sport and taking advantage uh, not only of the boxers, but, uh, but of the people who enjoy boxing and want to see a good match. Well, if people enjoy boxing, again, this is a must-have. It's a great book, Boxing and the Mob, The Notorious History of the Sweet Science, just out. Uh, Jeffrey, how do we get it? Uh, you can get it on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. That's easy enough, and it is... It is out and ready to be purchased. So this is great. You'll get you be one of the first people to get it. Jeffrey, always love talking with you. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you for interviewing me. I enjoyed speaking with you as well.